Take your Bible, turn to 2 Kings chapter 4. As you might have seen from uh, the bumper right there, uh, what we're going to be talking about uh, today is how do we find a miracle in your mess. And so let me just give you a little bit of context here. Uh, we're, in that, we're in a series called The Year of the Bible, which means it's primarily about getting you in the Bible. It's not just a sermon series. It's really resourcing you, whether you're a parent, on how do you read the Bible with your kids, whether you've never read the Bible through in a year, or all spaces in between. Uh, you can get so much information online. The stuff is all free on the website, so go in there and take advantage of that. But on Sundays, what we're doing is we're walking our way through the Bible, really from Genesis to Revelation. And obviously, there's some things we've got to skip. There's 52 weeks, really 50 for this year that we are doing, uh, and there's 66 books. So in the, you knew that was off when we spent six weeks in Genesis, so you knew there were some things that we were going to have to skip over. But in First and Second Kings, those books are about... They're really about, uh, they have a lot to do with two prophets that have similar names. One of them is Elijah and one of them is Elisha, all right? It doesn't matter if you mix them up uh, or if I mix them up. Elijah comes first and then Elisha, all right? So Elisha is the guy we're going to be looking at today. And what you see in this section of the Bible are probably more miracles squeezed in to these two prophets than any other place in the Bible. But I say that to say there's a lot of misunderstanding, both secular and in the church, about this whole idea of miracles. When it comes to miracles, sometimes the fact is we just dumb them down. We water them down. We, don't, we call a miracle what is really not a miracle. It's unexpected. It's not predicted. Uh, so even here in uh, the great state of North Carolina, we've called stuff miracles that we did not expect to happen. I mean, the miracle in March, way back in the 80s, when the Wolf Pack, North Carolina State, when they somehow beat my Houston Cougars who were loaded with NBA talent, and it was like, it wasn't a miracle lucky. I mean, the guy threw up an air ball, the guy's right there, dunks over Olajuwon, close to a miracle, but not a miracle, right? Uh, I think everybody, first time I actually ever heard of App State uh, was the, the miracle at Michigan, all right? The miracle at Michigan when App State went up there and beat a highly ranked University of Michigan team in the big house, blocked the the, the field goal, ran it back. I mean, that is, you're like, is that a miracle? It's not a miracle. We call them miracles. They're not miracles, all right, miracle is basically defined as this. A miracle is defined as a surprising event not explainable by natural or scientific law. In other words, it's when God takes away for a small period of time the patterns and the laws that he himself has put in place. Now, I actually did a little study on miracles this week, and it surprised me that by and large, Americans still believe in miracles. Here's a couple of stats that might surprise you. 67% of Americans, two out of three, said, you know what, miracles are still possible today. Nearly two out of five U.S. adults said they have personally experienced a miracle. That's like 95 million Americans are convinced that God has performed at least one miracle for them personally. One survey said that 55% of U.S. physicians, U.S. doctors, have seen results in their patients that they themselves would consider miraculous. Another survey had three quarters of 1,100 doctors surveyed are convinced that miracles can occur today, a percentage that's actually higher than the average U.S. population in general. But there's also a lot of bad teaching in the church today about miracles. You've got You've got charlatans who have turned the church into a carnival and basically 
made God the genie that if you rub the lamp the right way or you put the coin into the vending machine, then God is obligated to heal you. That God is obligated to make you prosperous. And I believe that God does miracles today, absolutely. But the days of God doing miracles on demand every time, whenever you say, this has gotta happen, those days, those days are not there. We don't see those. You even see that progression in the book of Acts. But God does still do miracles. And I don't know about you, but I want more miraculous in my life. I want more miraculous in our church. I want less, you know what, I can explain that in my life. I want less of, I can explain how that happened in our church. I want less of an explainable life. I want more of that has to be God doing that because that's the only way that, that can be explained. And so today, we're gonna look at a story of a widow that you might initially say, man, what does the story of a widow 2,500 years ago have to do with me? And the idea is what you're gonna see is, while God is not a formula, God is a formula is more of religion than the gospel. Religion says, God, if I do A, you are obligated to do B. That's not the gospel. Gospel faith is understanding we are coming to a good and merciful God. Gospel faith understands like Romans 8 said, surely he who gave up his own son for us will not withhold any good thing. And so a story of a widow 2,500 years ago does show a pattern of what God typically does, and he can work any way he wants to, but it's a pattern we need to recognize of how God works in our mess. And it's not just back then, it's right now. And so what I want you to do today is uh, kind of put into your hands the heaviest thing going on in your life today. The thing that, you know what, I don't just want God to do something, I need God to do something. And I know in a, a church at our campuses and watching online, I don't need to go down a laundry list of all the different messes that are in our church. You know what it is. Maybe you've even cried out for a while, God, please do this, but it, it runs the gamut. You'll see that the lady in the story today had five or six different ways you could look at her mess. Your mess might be a marital mess. It might be, you know what, we're separated. The lawyers have been called. He wants nothing to do with counseling. It's gonna take a miracle for something to jar his hard heart loose to actually wanna work on this thing. It might be you've got a prodigal and she's way away in Boston somewhere and you know what, it's been a long time since she even had any hunger at all for anything to do with the things of God. And you're a parent or you're a grandparent and you've prayed and you've cried out to God, but maybe that crying out has grown a little hoarse. Maybe it's been a long time since tears hit the carpet because you're crying out for your granddaughter. And you're like, God, I don't just want you to, I need you to move in my granddaughter's life. Maybe it's financial and while everybody else is like, this is pretty awesome. I mean, real estate's going up, everything's great. My business is about to collapse. God, please, I don't just want you to, I need you to for the glory of God, would you please do this? It could be something that happened this week. Maybe you were sitting there and you went to a routine doctor's appointment 
And all of a sudden, that little bump you felt on your rib cage, you thought, man, that's nothing at all. I mean, it's just, but then the next day you kind of went like that and it was a little bit bigger and you're like, man, that's worrisome. And then you go to the doctor expecting them to say, man, that's nothing. We'll just kind of lance that thing and that'll be done with. And all of a sudden you're on your way to Chapel Hill trying to figure out what am I gonna do now? And I will just say this before we jump into the text. We all are gonna face times of desperation. Now, you might not be in that desperation time right now. Right now, the sky might be blue, the kids might be good, the marriage might be strong, the job might be solid. But I promise you, you cannot audit the class of desperation. One day, you're going to need this story. And I don't say this about many messages, but this will be a great one as we go through it to jot a few things down, maybe in your Bible, maybe on your phone. And because one day you're going to like, I need that story. So uh, let's just jump in. What do you say? All right. Um, 2 Kings chapter 4, I'm going to read the story. It's only seven verses. It kind of comes out of nowhere to some degree. And then I'm going to make a few principles from it and then uh, uh, try to act on it today. So here it is. Uh, Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophet, just kind of keep in mind wife, she's there's kind of two main characters here. You've got the wife and you've got a prophet. His name is Elisha. We're going to come back to both of them. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord. So we're going to come back to this again, but before we move on to the rest of verse 1 and then verse 2 is, it's not in the Bible. We don't know exactly who this woman's husband was. Jewish literature, extra biblical literature, says that, you know what, this is the guy, this is the guy Obadiah that you read about that hid the prophets from Jezebel in a cave. In other words, this is not a JV player. Her husband could have been the guy that's like, I'm gonna hide a hundred of the prophets that are standing up, I'm gonna hide them in a cave. We're gonna spend our own money to buy bread to feed the preachers so that they make it during this difficult time. So just keep that in mind. That may be true. That's not in the Bible, but that may be true. But the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. That was actually allowed back then. You owed money you couldn't pay. What you do is you then then come and take your kids, put them to work until your debt is paid off or until what they call the year of jubilee. And Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Now, I don't really know the answer, but does that not seem like a weird question on the front end? I mean, that is not the most pastoral question you could ask, correct? I'll put it this way. If I visit you in the hospital and you got tubes coming out of you and you're like almost ready to die, And I ask you that question, I get an F in bedside manner. What do you mean, what do y'all want you to do? I want you to pray, I'd get out of this bed. That's what I want you to pray. So I don't know why I asked the question, nor do we know exactly how much time is in between these two questions. But here's the second question. Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, go outside, borrow vessels from all of your neighbors, empty vessels, and don't miss this one, and not a few. 
In other words, a bunch. Get a bunch of vessels. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him, shut the door behind herself and her sons. As she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, that's Elisha, and he said, go sell the oil, pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. So what does this story, this mysterious story have to do with the mess that you are in right now? What does this story have to do with the mess that you will be in in three months that you maybe don't even have a, even a thought about? What does it have to do with the mess that you can feel brewing in your home, at your job, in your life that you know at some point, if things don't change, that's gonna hit the fan and it is all gonna come loose. What does this story have to do with that? What do I do? Now listen, God is, again, he's not a formula. The story's not presented like, okay, do these three steps and boom, your miracle's gonna pop out like a vending machine. That's not it at all. But it is presented as a pattern you and I can go to it's kind of like uh, Jesus said, you know what? The spirit is kind of like the wind. It's like you can't tell exactly where he's gonna move sometime. What you can do is you can put the sail up and say, you know what? When God moves, I wanna be ready. That's more like what today is. So here, let's just put down this first one uh, just for a minute. And that is, uh, what do you do? You wanna cry out in the mess. You cry out in the mess. So let's sort of think about the story for a second. You've got a wife, that's really what it says. As I said, we don't know exactly who it is. It could be Obadiah's wife. We don't know, but she is in crisis. She is in pain. She is desperate. She's like, I need God. I need God to move. This is not just a prayer of now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. That's not that. That's not bless this food to the nourishment of my body. That's not this kind of rote prayer. Note this, the Bible makes a distinction between prayer and crying out. There's a difference. Look in the Psalms. Sometimes it says prayer and sometimes it says call out or cry out and it's talking about fervency, intensity, sometimes even volume. So she has got pain, she's got emotional pain. Her husband just died. We don't know how long this story all took for her husband to, we don't know. I mean, maybe he had a cough one day, maybe he was bedridden the next day, maybe he died on Thursday, we don't know or maybe it was drawn out for a long, long time. But she's got some emotional pain, she's a widow. Widow is super hard any day, it's particularly hard back in this day. It says that he was a son of a prophet, it really means a seminary student in, in our day and time, a seminary student. Those of you that have ever been to seminary or know somebody in seminary, seminary, no matter, almost no matter who you are, seminary is gonna take at least some degree of sacrifice. It is, it's gonna take people in seminary, 99% of people in seminary, you know how much money they have? Zero, they have no money at all. Lori and I lived in a 400 square foot apartment. I know that might be big for some of you and super small for others of you. I'm just saying, 
you know, I was trying to think back. I was like, I think I made $400 a month, a month. She made about the same thing and we made it work. And the point is, when you go to seminary, most people sacrifice when they go. It's like, God wants me to do this. God's called me into the ministry. And so this guy and this lady, they go off with their dreams about how God's gonna use them and it doesn't turn out like they thought. They go and they go to seminary and they are doing God's work and they're obeying God's will and then he dies. And she's got some emotional confusion. And it wasn't, it wasn't like he was some hypocrite. It says, you know what? You know your servant feared the Lord. I mean, he feared the Lord. He loved the Lord. He raised a God-fearing family. And he read him the Bible. He took him to church. He, he, he's that guy. And he dies. And that led to some financial pain. The creditor is knocking on the door and you can read into that. She's done everything to get to this point just like you would, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you do this? Your husband dies and you've got, you've got some kids and you know the culture in that day allows those creditors to come and take them. And you know she did everything. She liquidated everything. She did whatever odd jobs she could find. But at some point that runs out. And at some point, at some point, God will put you in a situation or allow a situation where all of your resources, all of your control, all of that stuff, you just can't do anything else. It's beyond what you can do. And so uh, she had some maternal pain as well, motherly pain. She says that she was gonna lose her kids. And it says she cried out to the prophet, now, Elisha is the one, the, the office of prophet nowadays is not, there is no office of prophet now, all right? All right, preachers tell what God's already said. Prophets back then represented God and they also spoke for God. They spoke for God, but sometimes they would foretell and other times they would foretell. Point being is Elisha was God's man. He was God's voice to the people. And she comes with her prophet because she knows she is in a situation that only God can fix. The loved ones, here's what the Bible says. One of the ways you do is you take an Old Testament story and then you put it through the grid of biblical teaching. And so in Psalm 50, for example, it says, call upon me in your day of trouble. That is her day of trouble. Lost her husband, lost her finances, about to lose her kids, that is her day of trouble. He says, I will deliver you and you will glorify me. Now, loved one, this might be your day of trouble. Your day of trouble might be marital, it might be financial, it might be physical, it might be parental, we don't know. But the idea is your day of trouble is the day when you cry out to God and he says, I will deliver you and when I deliver you, you're gonna glorify me. Now, here's what I know to be true personally as well as just talking with enough people over the years. If we're not careful, that thing that is heaviest on our heart, if the duration goes on for a while, the intensity in which we cry out to God lessens. Because the bottom line is, it, is, it hurts to hold up an empty vessel. An empty vessel says, I need something and I don't have it. I want something, there's something that should be right and it's not happening. 
And as we've talked about before, when it comes to difficulties, it's not the darkness of the difficulty, if it's the duration of the difficulty that is the hardest part about them, correct? I mean, if you understand, you know what, you're gonna go through hell for the next three days, but on Wednesday, it's gonna be solved. You can, you can make it through. What gets hard is, is when Wednesday turns into Saturday and it turns into May and it turns into 22 and you don't see anything happening, all of a sudden, we don't cry out with the same intensity. Why? Because as we've said before, it's easier to cope than it is to hope because hope hurts. That's what the proverb says. Proverb says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hope deferred, you know what? I thought there was gonna be a day when we would reconcile. I thought there would be a day when my business would make it. I thought there would be a day when God would heal the cancer. I thought there would be a day when the prodigal comes back in the front door. I thought that day would be before today and it's not happened for me. And what I wanna challenge you is that God wants you to go back from coping back to hoping. So what he wants for you today. He wants you to get a little vulnerable and say, you know what? I've, I'm, here's what I thought about. I thought about the little elephant. Y'all seen that little deal where, you see these big, massive elephants and they're, they're staked down by like a rope with a peg. And you're like, how, when you're a kid, you're like, how is that happening? That is an elephant. He can pull that stake out just like that. And what you learn is when that elephant was small, they put that stake in the ground and he pulled and he pulled and he pulled and it didn't happen and he couldn't move the stake. And what happened is he settled in his mind that that stake can hold me down. That stake rules over me. That stake is stronger than me. And so what happens is when he gets old, he doesn't even try anymore. Why? Because the stake has already defeated him. And loved one, what you gotta understand is whatever that thing is, whatever that thing that is heaviest on your heart, if your motive is the glory of God and the good of other people, you can still cry out. And God is more powerful than whatever that is that you're like, that cannot happen, that can't happen. It can happen, it can happen for you. But the start, it's not the only thing we do. Prayer is not the only thing you do. It is the first thing we do. And so we gotta go back, go back to crying out for God. Let the tears on your carpet get wet again, crying out for whatever that heaviest thing is. It's not the only thing we do. Here's another thing we do though, is we do wanna use what you have. This is a, this is a, pair, a pattern that, we talked about it a little before, but look at verse two. Verse two, he says, oh, again, this is a strange question. This is uh, obviously Elisha is no like Kelvin Mosley or Sam McLam that walks into a hospital and you feel amazing. You feel good about being sick just because they're visiting you. You're like, man, I'm going to hospital more. I just feel better just because you're in the room. Elisha is not, all right? Elisha's not. Elisha's not that guy. He's like, first of all, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Which actually probably is a pretty amazing question because he's saying, how much do you still want this? God might be asking you the same question. How much do you still want that? You start off by crying out to me, but then I want you to use what you already have. And that's when he asked the question, what do you have in the house? The first part of the sentence says, really, I got nothing in the house. If I had something in the house, I would have liquidated it instead of losing my sons. But it, she does say, except this jar of oil. Now the oil is not like essential oils and the oil is not like uh, you know, super unleaded. All right, oil was used in a variety of ways from cooking to fuel uh, to, to really uh, to money. It was used to trade and barter. In other words, that was something of value in there. 
And here's what you got to understand. The answer to your situation more than likely is something that God has already put into your hands. The answer to your situation, the answer to your desperation is something that God has already put in your hands. So let's just, let's, let's think about this for a second. God could have solved her problem by providing a miracle in a hundred different ways, correct? Wouldn't you think that's correct? I mean, could he have not just like, Shazam, all the creditors just die. I mean, they just die. He could have done that. He could have like, boom, a massive vat of oil right in her backyard, boom, he could have done that. He could have done that. He could have all of a sudden said, you know what, real estate is going like it is in Asheville and now your house is worth four times what it was a few years ago. He could have done that, but he didn't. He's like, what do you have in your house? And he's like, bring out what you have in your house. And what you see in the scriptures is there is a pattern of God using what you already have. You're like, why does he do that? I'm not sure. I don't know the answer to that question, but the pattern is there. Whether it be Moses and the rod, um, whether it be when he heals the blind guy and he uses the clay, whether it be in the very first miracle Jesus did at the wedding at Cana, he uses kind of something similar to this, empty vessels. It's like, hey, go fill up these water jars. Or here's, I'm gonna use two famous ones. Or how about the feeding of the 5,000? Even if you're new to Bible study, you probably heard about the feeding of the 5,000. Remember how that went? Feeding of the 5,000. He's out there in the middle of nowhere. He's preaching. And it's like, hey, master, the people are hungry. They're hungry. They're hungry. They don't have anything to eat. And what does he tell them? He says, go see what's in the crowd. And they're like, we, we told you <laughs> there's nothing in the crowd. If they had something in the crowd, then we wouldn't come to you saying they're hungry because they'd what? They would eat what they had already, but they go and do it anyway. What's happening? So they bring back a Lunchable, the equivalent of a Lunchable. And he's like, boom, that is it. Now, how many believe if Jesus had wanted to, he could have gone boom and there would have been like a Chick-fil-A right there for the 5,000. Come on, put your hand up and bless. He could have. He could have said, Chick-fil-A right there. Give me a number two. I mean, he could have. He could have done that, and he did not. But he said, what's out there? They bring that little boy with the Lunchable, and then he says, hey, fellas, feed the people, and don't forget to pick up the baskets of leftovers. I mean, here's probably the second famous story, David and Goliath. David and Goliath, I mean, you think it was just because like David was like, an, I granted God did give him some experience, you know, and train him up and all this kind of stuff. But honestly, do you think the fact that David was like a super expert in slingshot, that's the reason he could put a stone on the forehead of a giant and kill him. If you think that, then you actually disagree with David. Because 1 Samuel 17, he says, you know what? The battle is the Lord's. The Lord gave that to us. And nowhere in scriptures does David go around doing like slingshot contest or, you know, killing giant conferences. There's none of that stuff where he's like, I'm an awesome slingshot person. God used what was already there. So here's, here's let me just get, let me meddle. Let me meddle. What do you already have? What do you already have? You got, you got the Bible already. You got the Bible. Uh, you got prayer. Hopefully, if you don't, we can solve this next one. You got Christian friends, give you some counsel, give you some encouragement. You got, 
even above Christian friends, you got professional counselors, all right? You got children and student ministries. In other words, the answer to your situation is probably coming through something you already have. The question is, are you using what you already have? Are you using what you already have? Your marriage is in trouble. Have you seen a gospel-saturated, gospel-based Christian counselor? Somebody like Summit Wellness. If you're like, you know what? I gotta go and talk to somebody about my marriage that understands that without the good news of the gospel of Jesus, all this change is just trying to kind of like rearrange chairs on the decks of the Titanic, but they're gospel-saturated, biblically strong. Have you done what godly counsel has already told you to do? The Christians are the worst at this, let's be honest. You get good counsel, you get godly counsel. You need to do this, you need to apologize, you need to go here, you don't need to go to this direction. You're like, ah, oh, I'll put that under consideration. Good counsel, godly counsel, have you done all the godly counsel? You're worried about your teenager. Like, man, I don't like where my teenager's going, I don't like the direction, I don't like the friends. Have you gotten them involved in the student ministry? Have you got them signed up for Wake Weekend coming up here in a few minutes? Every single year, except last year, COVID year, every single year other than that year, multiple emails come in that use the phrase like, I've seen a miracle in the life of my teenager. God did something over Wake Weekend I could not have imagined. It's like I got a new daughter. She used to want nothing to do with us. Now she's cleaning the kitchen for the glory of God, all right? Do you have them already signed up for that? You're like, well, I'm lonely. I just don't know anybody and I'm new to Asheville. Then let us help you, all right? Let us help you, all right? Get in a connect group, all right? Get involved in a church. Again, it's like, I'm thirsty, I'm thirsty. Well, here's some water. No, I don't want water. I don't want water. It's like, that's God's trying to answer that. Now, I... Uh, I almost didn't want to use this, but I figure it might be good for a little bit of levity. I, I, I use this about every four years. So if you were here four years ago, just laugh with the rest of them. But to me, it actually is a great segue between this point about use what you have and then the last point, the final point, because um, most people have heard of the first one. Again, even if you're new to Bible study, you've heard about footprints in the sand, correct? All right, footprints in the sand. Some of you have it in a needle point that's on your wall and it's... It's a great, it's a great, it, honestly, it's very good. If you hadn't done it, you can look it up later, but it's basically, you know what, there's two, you know, there's footprints in the sand and God, I don't know how you abandoned me and da-da-da, there's only one set of footprints and then he's like, oh, my child, that is when I carried you. I carried you during that time. That's why there's one set of footprints because I was carrying you during that time and that is a, it's a great, it is great. It's awesome, it's amazing for about, for about, for about 10% of the Christian life. For about 90% of it, there's maybe one that's a smidgen more appropriate that some of us need to take, uh, take, uh, take seriously as well. And it's kind of a knockoff of it. It's, it's actually called butt prints in the sand. And it says, uh, it says, one night I had a wondrous dream. One set of footprints there was seen, the footprints of my precious Lord, but mine were not along the shore. But then some stranger prints appeared, and I asked the Lord, what have we here? And those prints are large and round and neat. But Lord, they are too big for feet. My child, he said in somber tones, for miles I carried you alone. I challenged you to walk in faith, but you refused and made me wait. 
You disobeyed. You would not grow the walk of faith you would not know. So I got tired. I got fed up. And there I dropped you on your butt. Because in life there comes a time when one must fight and one must climb, when one must rise and take a stand or leave their butt prints in the sand. So the point being, point being, point being is we pray, we cry out, but is there something God has already told you to do? It's like right there, right there. Well, God fixed my teenager. It's right there. Right there. And so for some of us, here's kind of the last thing, and you got to do this. Today is the day to take a step of faith, at least one step of faith. You're like, well, that, that could be embarrassing, or that could be awkward, or people wouldn't understand, or they might think I'm a Jesus freak, or let's just look at the story again. Verses 3 through 6, remember he tells her to do something. It's a little odd. It's a little embarrassing. What does he say? He says, I want you to go, and I want you to go basically borrow from your neighbors as many vessels, remember what the phrase was, and not a few. That's the Bible's way of saying get a bunch of, get, a, get as many as you can. And so can you imagine, just kind of think through the scenario out. We don't get the details, but she comes back with a bunch of vessels. So here's what the lady did. Here's what the widow lady did. She's got no husband. They're about to take her kids away. She's got no money. The preacher's like, well, go borrow a bunch of empty vessels. Really? That's your answer? That's your answer? It's not CPS. It's not, I know a good banker. That's your answer. And so what does she do? She goes. She goes. She asks. She borrows. She pours. Hey, uh, I'm two doors down. Yeah, what can you need? We see you out in the street playing with your boys. I need to, I need to borrow some jars. Why? I, I don't know. Uh, how many do you need? Uh, as many as you have. I don't really know. <laughs> okay. Security, that's, what, that's what's gonna happen. But she comes back with them. She does something that is potentially awkward, potentially embarrassing, and she, just think about the excuses she could have used. You know what, it's too late, it's too busy, it's too messy, and she goes there. So here's, the, here's what you gotta understand. Before we try to put this into action, you've got to understand this. When it comes to faith, when it comes to a step of faith, your faith has much more to do with your feet than it does with your feelings. Your faith has to do with your feet, not your feelings. Faith is in what you do, not just the way you feel. Well, I don't feel like going to a marriage council. I don't feel like going to a connect group. I don't feel like getting some godly counsel. It doesn't matter what you feel. Faith says, God has said it. God has pushed me this way. Faith is a verb. Faith is acting like God is telling the truth. It's how, you came, it's how you came to God if you're a Christ follower. If you're a Christ follower, you had to have a point where you said, you know what, I'm out of control. I can't pay for my own sins. Preacher up there told me about the gospel that you died for my sins. So right now, I am saying, you know what, when you said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. I believe somehow that counted for me and I embrace you by repentance and faith. That happened. Or you're not a Christ follower, you need to do that now. It's not just the way you came to Christ. When you see it, it's the way we grow. It's, it's the way you see God work in your life. It's the way you see the miraculous happen. I just did a perusal through the gospels. Jesus heals those who believed he could. He rebuked the disciples for their lack of faith during difficult times. He said, you need to have faith for ministry. 
He goes to his hometown and the Bible says he did no miracles there because of their lack of faith. Now we don't have time to go down this chase, but what do you think about the fact that, you know what, there came a point in time in verse six where it's like, hey, we're out of jars, we're out of jars. Do you not think for maybe just a second there, that widow lady said, man, I wish I had had more faith. Man, why didn't I get another bunch of jars? Because every indication was if she'd have brought more jars, God would have filled those jars up. And um, you pray in faith. The Bible says, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. But you go, well, yeah, there's some, there's, some, there's some other parameters. I agree, there is. But it, is, it says what it is. You pray this prayer in faith and you'll already have it. So what's the step of faith that you need to take today? And let me just give you, let me just run down some examples of um, maybe your step of faith is uh, for an emotional miracle. You need to forgive the person that hurt you. Somebody's hurt you. Some ex has, you know, not been just with you. I'm not saying that you trust again, and I'm not saying that you let somebody get away with anything. I'm just saying for your own sake, if you want an emotional miracle, get rid of some of that anger and bitterness, then you need to trust God that, you know what, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, and you need to forgive I've already said it before, you want a parenting miracle, man. Get your teenager, your middle schooler, get them signed up for Wake Weekend. Get them involved in the student ministry. You want a spiritual miracle? It might be as simple as doing what you saw today already. It's like, I gotta get baptized. I gotta, I've been thinking about it. I've been thinking maybe I should. Listen, if you're a Christ follower and you hadn't, you should. Like, I'm gonna pray about it. Just do it. If God already said it, you go through the year of the Bible. Maybe I need to get in. Maybe I need to read my Bible. Maybe I need some resources. That's a step of faith. You need an eternal miracle, just embrace Christ. You need a financial miracle, honor God financially. You need an identity miracle. Again, get back in your Bible and say, you know what, I understand that I'm not my, I'm not my GPA, I'm not my income, I'm not my past. God has redeemed me from my sins and you cry out. So here's the way we're gonna end because the bottom line is uh, Moody, D.L. Moody said this, God turns away no one except him who is already full of himself. So he's saying anybody who comes to God empty, God does not turn away. The only one he turns away is the one that comes already full of himself. So uh, I'll tell you what I'm gonna do. If you would at the other campuses too, just for a second, if you bow your heads and close your eyes, but listen carefully. Your head's bowed and your eyes closed. Just respect others and just have your heads bowed and your eyes closed. And here's what, I would just, here's what I would encourage you to do. The Bible says that Jesus humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. The Bible says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you at the proper time. The Bible says God is opposed to the proud, but he pours out grace on the humble. And so God has put a desperate situation into your life right now. You, uh, you've tried, you've done what you know you need to do, or maybe God's told you today, hey, use what you have, do what you knew to do. Take a step of faith. But you're in a desperate situation. You need God to do something that only he can do. With heads bowed and eyes closed at whatever campus that you're watching from, I'm gonna ask you to just take a step of faith, do a little bit of humility, heads bowed and eyes closed. But if you're like, you know what? I'm in a desperate situation. Would you pray for me? Will you just cry out to God for me? Would you just pray a prayer of faith for me? I would just, again, heads bowed and eyes closed. If that's you, it's not everybody, but if that's you, if you would just right where you are, stand to your feet, 
heads bowed and eyes closed, nobody else looking around, just stand to your feet as an act of humility saying, you know what, I need the help of God. I need God to move. I need the God to move miraculously in my life, in my job, in my home, in that person that I've been praying for for years in my prodigal's life. I need God to do what only God can do. Just go ahead and stand to your feet right there. Hendersonville, Franklin, stand to your feet. Brevard, same thing, west and east. Go ahead and just stand and remain standing. Nobody's looking around. It's just an act of dependence. It's saying, you know what, I can't do it. God can't. So I'm just gonna pray for those and here's what I would ask you to do with your heads bowed and your eyes closed still if you're seated. If you're not praying for yourself and again, kind of during a COVID time, just kind of put your hand out. Normally we might even gather around, do a little body life where we put a hand on a shoulder. But for right now, just kind of put your hand out. But in faith, just somebody's around me standing up in desperation, asking the church to pray. So get your hand out there. Let me, let me pray for us all. God, that's what our prayer is right now. You said we have not because we ask not. And when we do ask, we ask with wrong motives. And so God, we got a bunch of people standing all over Western North Carolina right now. And by standing there saying, help, I need the help of God. I need God to move. And if God doesn't move, it's not gonna happen. So God, we pray for them right now. You have said that you were opposed to the proud, but they have shown humility and standing and saying, you know what? I'm dependent. I can't make it change. You've got to do it. And so God, I pray you would honor their humility by moving in their life in a miraculous way for the glory of God, that you would allow them to see God at work in their situation. God, our prayers are, if it's, if it's marital, that you would give them not just humility, but you would give them blessing to be able to say, you know what? I didn't think it was gonna work, but show them what they need to do. If it's an apology that needs to happen, God, help them to apologize and humble themselves, ask forgiveness. God, if it's persistence and perseverance, God, help them to remember. It's like, you know what? What God is joined together, do not let man separate. If it's understanding, God, help that husband to understand his wife and live with his wife in an understanding way and grant her honor as an heir, a precious co-heir of the gift of life. God, I wanna pray for those parents and grandparents. Man, they got a granddaughter, they got a son, and man, he is so far off, and it has been years since you've seen any work in their life. And you have said in Isaiah 43 that you would bring our sons from afar and you would bring our daughters back home. And so on that basis, we ask that we would see you move in the lives of kids and grandkids this week. God, help us to know what we need to do. God, help us to know what we need to do. Let the carpet be wet again with the tears of your people. God, I want to pray for financially that our people, we would honor you. We would trust you. We would honor you with our finances for the glory of God and the advancement of the gospel in Western North Carolina, in Ecuador, in Asia. God, forgive us for our materialism and our selfishness. Help us to honor you and by doing so, honor Jesus. So God, our prayer also is as we leave this place, even from whether it be worship, whether it be whatever, God, I pray that there would be a, just a miraculous moving of the spirit of God. We can't, we don't wanna dictate, God, you're God. Until you move in their lives, our prayers are that we would just simply trust you. We trust, you know what? 2,000 years ago, for three days, not many people thought you were doing much. But God, at that point in time, you were doing more than we could even dream or imagine Two weeks ago, we celebrated the tomb was empty and we said that if the tomb is empty, anything is possible. And God, we just claim that with God, with God, nothing is impossible. 
So do what only you can do for the glory, the glory of God. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.